BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. More than a decade ago, writer Sheila Hetty, known for her true-to-life reflections in works like Motherhood and Pure Color, began looking back at her old diaries and wondering if she'd changed. She loaded them into Excel, alphabetized the sentences, and after editing the 500,000 words down to about 60,000, produced her latest work, Alphabetical Diaries. We'll hear what Hetty learned from the project about both her consistencies and contradictions, about how our minds work. And we want to hear from you. What have you learned from revisiting your diaries? Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For her new book, Alphabetical Diaries, writer Sheila Hetty took 10 years' worth of digital diary entries, loaded them into an Excel spreadsheet, and alphabetized them by sentence. The result, sentences read together that could have been written days, even years apart. And yet, by paring them down while always maintaining alphabetical order, Hetty found recurring themes, story, and character. This from Chapter A. Agnes's life has so much integrity because around her is only what she wants and loves. Ah, well. Ah, who cares? Sheila Hetty joins me now to talk about the consistencies of the self that surface, no matter how we reconstruct the narrative of our lives. Sheila Hetty, such a pleasure to have you on Forum. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I heard you say in an interview that you still think a lot of the same things that you wrote in those diaries maybe some 15 or so years ago and that you probably don't even need to write in a diary anymore as a result. And I was thinking, wow, that consistency must have been a pretty interesting revelation. Yeah, it's not what I expected when I first put the sentences into Excel and alphabetized them, which was like 500,000 words. Um, I was looking for patterns but I thought there would be more patterns. I thought there would be more variation. And as I started editing them and looking through them over years and years, 
it became clear that there's very few things I think about, or in any case, very few things I write about in my journal, um, who I'm romantically interested in, uh, the book that I'm working on, and how to make money. And that's sort of like, that's pretty much it. Those are the recurring themes, and those are still the things you think about now? Yeah, yeah. So what effect did it have on you to see that consistency? I mean, at first it was sort of a letdown because you think the ideal self is so varied and thinks about everything in the world. And it's, you know, you sort of want to be every human and have every preoccupation. And the truth is you're just this very small sliver of, of a self and and then once I realized that, I started to accept it. And then it kind of started to seem kind of beautiful to me. Like, you are just like one little petal of a flower. Like, you're just, you are so small. And it's sort of sweet. And it's okay. Did the consistency of self, meaning the fact that you were so constant and are so constant through those years, also feel beautiful? It's relaxing. Yeah, because... I think in this culture that we live in, you're supposed to always be transcending yourself. Um, and the idea that you are this little kernel of a self that just maintains itself from birth to death um, with little variations and sort of, you know, adaptations to your environment and the time of life you're in. I, I don't know. It's just it's a it's it's a little humbler, but it's also a little more uh, of a ten. You can have a more tender relationship to yourself when when you see oh that's actually kind of what it is. And I wouldn't have known that that's what it is because you experience life as so much change, hour to hour. You feel so different, but then when you look at it globally, like ten years, you're like, no, it's I experience lots of feelings, but in fact they're like when you. Yeah, when you zoom out, it's it's actually quite a small number of preoccupations and a, and a small number of reactions. And, and so there was a certain, I love the word tenderness, so a tenderness for who you are. It also sounds like it gave you maybe a sense of freedom from constantly trying to improve yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think I still am because it's fun to try to make things in your life better and it makes your life better. But I don't think that I have this idea that I need to be a different person. I need to be, yeah, a different person. Was looking at your diaries any more than just that, wondering if you changed or was there something else that was the inspiration for it? I mean, I think I just like to work. And I had just finished this book, How Should a Person Be?, which I published in 2010. And yeah. it was like five or six years of really intense work. And I just had nothing to do when I went to the computer, you know. And so it was not just wanting to think about myself. It was wanting to edit. It was wanting to have a lot of material to play with right away. Because it's like I just finished running this big race and I, I didn't want to rest. I just wanted to keep running because it's fun to work for me. So this was a way of starting, okay, I'm starting some new project. I have half a million words. Like I can just jump into it. It wasn't, oh, let me have to think about a book for six months and what's it going to be about? And now I've got to start writing it. It was just a way of jumping right into the middle of a project. 
Well, I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation to tell us if you have ever looked back on your diaries as a wealth of material for whatever reason, whether to get back into working to learn more about who you are. Of course, if you have questions for Sheila about this particular project, about writing or about her past work, feel free to ask those as well. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. And you can always give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Okay, so alphabetizing them. How did that come to you? What made you want to alphabetize the sentences within that massive amount of you know work from, from 10 years worth of diary entries? Um, I was curious to see how many times I'd written the same sentence over time. Like how many times had I written... I hate him. You know, for example, I always come back to that example. I wish I could come up with more, but that was what I thought. I was like, how many times did I write, I hate so-and-so? And I found less of that sort of repetition than I imagined. I found thematic repetition, but I didn't really find sentences repeated. But that's what I sort of went into it hoping to find. And what kind of rules did you set for yourself as you were cutting away sentences did you ever change the sentences? Um, by the end of the, so I worked on this project for, edited it for 14 years. Like by the end of the last couple of years, I let myself edit a little bit because I thought, you know, I want this to be interesting to read. I want the sentences to have a certain flow. I never changed the meaning or anything, but I, I edited to make them a little better. Um, but no, the, the rules were just about um, making interesting putting sentences beside each other that would be interesting beside each other, that would create a certain tension, either humor or surprise. So I I was mostly just cutting. You know, I cut 90% of the book. Which is pretty incredible. In some ways, this feels like a massive celebration of the power of editing. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean... Because you can't write anything new. So the rule is, yeah, you yeah, can you only cut. add any new sentences no, at no, all to this. No. So let's hear some of this book. You you selected, I think, an excerpt from Chapter K. Do you want to say anything about it before you read it or just dive right in? Well, it's actually the entirety of Chapter K. <laughs> so it's a short chapter. Keep a list of all the people you need to speak to and read the books you need to read. Keep good track of your receipts. Keep in mind that none of these projects will make you any money. Keep it in a container and publish only what has reached the next stage of accomplishment. Keep the energies in your body and contain them. Keep the house clean and neat. Love him. Love family and friends. Keep this paragraph, which will ruin the whole entire thing. Keep this paragraph, this ugly worm that will eat all the papers and destroy it. Keep your eye on the distant, distant justification for all this. Killing evil thoughts. Knew it would only last a day. Knocked out my tooth this morning and can't find my gold coin. Know how to love a man by knowing how to love writing. Know there is always an alternative to the situation, even being very babyish and all alone. We're hearing Sheila Hetty read from her new book, Alphabetical Diaries, where she took 10 years' worth of diary entries, alphabetized the sentences, and then cut away but kept the alphabetical order, which listeners you might have heard as Sheila Hetty was reading it. The time period of this book is 2005 to about 2015? Yeah, around there. What was going on for you around that time, would you say? Um, So I had just left an early marriage in my 20s. Um, 
So I was in my, I was probably like 27 or something when I started writing this book. And I stopped writing it a few years into my current relationship because I had, you know, I've been with my partner now for 14 years. So the first few years, it's kind of still in that time period of like post-divorce, being with different men, you know. And then once you're in a long-term relationship, you start to feel different. Your life is different. And so I, I couldn't keep adding diary entries once my life had changed too much from that previous time. So it would kind of be the case that like at the end of every year, I would just dump all of those diaries into the into Excel. And, and, and then I realized once when I added, I think, the year 2014, and I thought, no, these years are, this year is too different, and I had to take it out. Well, this listener on Discord writes, After my father died, I read the journals he kept in his 20s before I was born. I don't know if he would have wanted that, but I couldn't resist. It was incredibly strange. I felt like I was meeting a version of my dad I'd never known, and I felt so deeply immersed in his inner mind. It was actually uncomfortable. (laughs) It also did make me think about journals not as truth, but as a private space into which one can release feelings and thoughts that are a burden. That's absolutely what it was for me. It was like, here's the place that you can talk in a way that you can't talk to any person. Um, I kind of wish my diaries had been more a record of my days, but they really were actually a place to work out problems. Why didn't you read this book for the audiobook? You actually had comedian Kate Berlant read it. But being so personal and, and you knowing how you meant a sentence to be read? What what made you give it over to someone else to read? I just had no desire to read it. I read, I did the audiobook for my last two books, Pure Color and Motherhood, and I just didn't want to go through the book in that way. It maybe felt too, too. I, I just wanted somebody else's inter- interpretation. And I, I love her comedy. And I, I, I think she's brilliant. And I just... Uh, I don't know. I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> what has been the experience of hearing it? Because you've listened to it, right? Yeah, I really like it. I. What's interesting is she's a friend of mine, and I know about her life. And so sometimes she'll read a sentence, and I'll think, I know what that means in Kate's life. I know what that means to her. And it means something different in her life than it does to me. And it's interesting to see it through the lens of a different mind and a different voice and you know, her putting different experiences onto those sentences. It's essentially what you're doing when you're putting a book out into the world. You're opening it up to interpretation, even your own diary. Yeah. We're talking with Sheila Hetty about her book, Alphabetical Diaries. Sheila Hetty is also the author of Motherhood, Pure Color, How Should a Person Be? And uh, she has an event tonight at the Los Angeles Central Library, so you can catch her there if you're there. And you can join the conversation here if you're not. You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on our social channels on Twitter or X, Instagram, our digital community on Discord, or you can call us at 866-733-6786. Have you revisited your old diaries? What was that like? More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with writer Sheila Hetty, who took 10 years' worth of diary entries and alphabetized them. And in that reorganization where chronology was gone, story and self remained very clear. (laughs) And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation about whether or not you've looked back at your diaries, reread them, and what you learned from that. Questions that you have for Sheila Hetty about this project, about writing in general, or about her past work. Have you ever considered publishing your diary or part of it or turning it into a story or memoir? If you want to read us a sentence from your journal that you think reflects something about you or that you just love, feel free to do that as well at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting on our social channels at kqed.org. QBD Forum. The listener who wrote about their dad's journal also wrote, people who keep diaries or journals, please leave instructions for your survivors if it's okay to read them or not. You're you're nodding at that. Yeah, that's a good, that's probably good advice. <laughs> but for you, it was totally not, you know, how did you know, I guess, that this sort of personal project was something that could be a book? When did you realize that? And how did that change maybe the way you approached it? Yeah, a few years into playing around with this, I started to think, this is actually interesting. Maybe I could publish it as a book. Maybe it should be an online project. You know, I I published an excerpt of it in N Plus One magazine. I was just thinking there's there's information in here for people about like what the self is and what time is and what memory is. And it, it was, there was some beauty in it too. And I, yeah, I think it was about two or three years and then I started thinking I could publish this. And what did it teach you about how our minds work? I mean, it's weird that something alphabetized should be so close to how thought works. Um, I think there's much less narrative, much less consistency, much less A to B to C to D in thought. You know, you're you're always jumping around. You're in so many places at once. You're in the present and in the past and in the future. And very quickly, um, moments succeed, moments, moments disappear, unexpected moments return. And that's how it feels to read this. I think it's like life. Yeah, but to actually translate that into a book which often has some kind of chronology, whether it's linear or not. How did you manage that? What did you need to do to create some sense of placing people in a certain context? I mean, I kept a lot of scenes and places in and had them recur. I have, you know, characters in the book that recur. And so you start to become familiar with the world of the book. You start to become familiar with the names of of, of the friends and lovers and so on and and of the places that I'm going to and or that she's going to. I never know what to say, I or she, um, in talking about this book because it starts to become somebody different from me. The more you edit, the more you're actually like creating something that's separate from you. Oh, wow. And you also, this quote-unquote characters, they're composites, right? Can you talk about how you did that with something as as intimate as the relationships that you dissect in this book? Yeah, so I didn't, one of the problems that I thought about for a long time was how am I going to publish this and not 
betray anybody in my life uh, and also not tell them what I thought of them. <laughs> you know, you don't want them. That was even a bigger concern. And so at one point, I just took all the names out and just used like he or she. And then I had a friend read it and, and she was like, no, it's more interesting with, with names in it. And so I thought, what am I going to do? And then I just realized I could take the sentences as they were and come up with characters um, and use sentences that were actually referring to different people for one new person. So, but because those sentences all refer to real people in real life, the characters that are invented, I guess, are very close in some way to the relationships that I did have. Like, you know, the man that that you're always waiting for his phone call. Like, that sentence might have been put with the man who who you do a certain thing in bed with. Um, maybe they were two different people in real life, but it, the relationships were still the same because those sentences were, um, I don't know how to put it. It was weird. It was a weird thing to do. But you realize like there are kind of archetypes in your life. There are certain people that you're drawn to over and over and over again. Or you sort of make people into archetypes so that you can relate to people in a certain way. Is there an example of an archetype that that you find you're constantly drawn to? Yeah, like, well, in those years, certainly like the the the, the person that you sort of long for kind of hopelessly Um and it can really just be somebody that you're slotting into that place, you know, like, okay, that person that you're longing for hopelessly is gone. Uh, but here comes another one. Like, you, you realize you're just the kind of person who likes to long hopelessly, or maybe you're like the kind of, you're the kind of person who likes to be bossed around by a friend. Well, yeah, I guess those were the two that I think about. Yeah. Well, Zaneda writes, I received a locking diary when I was 12 years old, and I've been keeping a diary on and off since then. I find it very helpful to go back and look at what I wrote as a teenager now that I have teens of my own. I can put myself back into that fun and crazy time, remembering crushes, loneliness, and how I wanted to be a pop star. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. There's this sentence in your book where you write, a commitment to the relationship with the full understanding that the relationship will evolve and change as you two evolve and change a curiosity about self-help, a desire to do acting, a desire to help people. And I'm I'm guessing our listeners can hear the alphabetical there, but I the a desire to do acting and then Zaneda's point about a pop star. And you also just saying that sometimes you use I or she, but it's almost like a the thing I think is sort of incredible about the process of reading this book was realizing how much one's personal diary, one very specific to you, you feel so familiar. The experiences that you go through feel so familiar for so many of us. Yeah, we're so the same on so many levels, especially in that private space of a diary. Like like Zaneda's saying, like, it's the loneliness, um, it's the crushes, it's, we all have those feelings. Yeah. Lupe in San Jose, you're on the line. Join us. Hi, Lupe. Hi, hi. Good morning. I started keeping a journal on just binder paper when I was, I don't know, ten or eleven, and finally I got my own little blue journal and I wrote "Keep Out." <laughs> but one of the things I wrote about during this, I think I was in seventh grade by this time. I had this terrible crush on this boy named Inez, <laughs> and I was so in love with him. I mean, I just hope every day was defined by I saw him today, <laughs> or he looked my way, or he actually said something to me. I mean, every day was, I was just all about him, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was hopelessly, it was one of those hopelessly, you know, or he. Ha- I think he also liked me, but anyway, it was it was hard for him because he 
anyway, so, but yeah, I, <laughs> and now I, I just wrote a 300 page memoir and I'm revising it. And I went back and looked at some of my, the things that I wrote. And in one case, I wrote that I had flown to Mexico City and I described the whole scene. And I went back and looked at my journal. And in fact, my dad had driven me to Bakersfield and then and then I'd taken a bus for three days. But then the actual flight took place like 10 years later. So it's little things that you think you for sure you know them, but then you go back and it's like, oh, it wasn't exactly like that. It isn't a discovery. Lupe, thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Again, the universal of that hopeless longing that you were talking about yeah. that, that you experienced, Sheila. I would love to I would love it if he had also kept a diary. <laughs> and then he was like, I looked at her today. <laughs> I said this to her today. Um the book I, I read one of the sentences from the book, and the book has been called by some reviewers like an ode to the sentence. There's so much within just one sentence. And I imagine that you can't remember the context for every sentence that you put into the book. But can I just read you a couple that really jumped out at me? And sure. I'm really curious if you remember the context. So this is from chapter B. You write, been thinking about authenticity and about how we've been done a great disservice by being taught that what we are to be authentic to is our feelings as opposed to our values. And I don't remember when I wrote that or what I, um, no, I don't remember <laughs> the context of that. That could have been any time. Um, but, you know, when I was writing How Should a Person Be, this is what the diaries, I was keeping these diaries, and that's what I was thinking about a lot when I was writing that book, was about authenticity and what does it mean? What are you supposed to be authentic to? Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and being authentic to feelings versus values, I think, creates a certain, I don't know. Anyway, there was a lot well, of wisdom lives. in that. Yeah, yeah, different lives. Like if you're authentic to your feelings, your life is going zigzag. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're authentic to your values, if you know what your values are, then your life can go in a straight line more. Yeah. And you're building a core, which I guess maybe is what you mean by authenticity. Okay, yeah. here's another one from chapter T. The image my mother had for me was to be a scientist, don't go to clown school, don't have sex before marriage, work hard, get married, have children, be happy. <laughs> okay, yeah. so the, the one that jumped out at me was, don't go to clown school. Yeah. So was that ever a possibility? Well, I mean, I think when I was five, I wanted to be a clown. And that was, I. and I've got a relative who told me this story that where she was like, you were telling your, we were all together, I was five years old, I told my mother I want to be a clown. And my mother said, clowns have to go to medical school first. <laughs> So I think that, um, yeah, don't be, don't go to clown school. Oh, this listener writes, the hardest I've ever laughed is when I read my old diary from high school. Crushes, tests, and shallow friendships seemed like the end of the world back then. How, but now make me giggle. Uh, let me go to caller Tim in Lafayette. Tim, you're on. Hi, Tim. Hi, are you um, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, thank you. The uh, This topic really resonates with me. Um, last year, 2023, was the 50th anniversary for me of a teenage uh, backpack trip uh, around Europe on a, on a Eurail pass with a buddy. And, um, and I stewed on it for 50 years. I wrote a journal during that trip. And um, uh, finally, last year, I thought, i got to get off the dime and write this story up. And so I searched and searched. I couldn't find the journal. It was lost. And so um, I wrote the entire piece up by memory. Right at the end, 
I found the journal, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm saved, right? Yeah. This is this is going to fill in all of the detail, all of the meat, you know, that I couldn't remember over, you know, from a 50-year-ago uh, journey. The journal, as it turns out, right, was written by myself when I was 17, a 17-year-old boy. Um, it was pathetic. It was... <laughs> What did I what did I have for breakfast? You know, what did I have for lunch? Wow. Um, you know, what what did that girl look like? And um and, and instead of having any kind of reflections, anyhow, long story short, I, I uh my my whole journey to, to do this and to turn that memory into writing um just really motivated me and I ended up uh, self publishing it on Kindle uh just recently. So it's online right now as a as an e book and a and a paperback and and I've I've but this whole experience that you're describing has just really, you know, sings to me and I, <laughs> I really appreciate it. What's your book called? It's called Europe by Eurail. Uh, colon 1973. Wow, that sounds great. <laughs> Congrats. Yeah. It's good that you didn't find the journal sooner because you might have been so let down by that self <laughs> that you wouldn't have actually written the book. <laughs> well, congratulations, Tim, on, on completing it. We're talking with Sheila Hetty about writing alphabetical diaries. It's, uh, it's documenting our lives and diaries and, and turning them into art. And in Sheila Hetty's case, alphabetizing the sentences and seeing what emerged. It's interesting. We're hearing from so many people who are thinking about or have turned their journals or memoirs or diaries uh, into books, mm -hmm. into memoirs, I should say, actually. And I was struck by something that you said where you've described a certain reluctance that people feel or shame about writing themselves, especially in the literary world, for example. Can you talk a little bit about, about what you mean by that and where you think that comes from? Well, it's embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing to appear in the world as you really are. And it's every instinct one has goes against it. You want to be impressive. You want to be liked. You want to be, um, yeah, all those things. And I think to actually write about yourself in such granular detail, you have to have like a, you got to sort of uh, not value how you're seen by other people and sort of value the book, the book's honesty more than your image. And I think that's a hard thing to do. It's easy to do if you really value books as much as, well, I do. Like, I just think the book is the most important thing. But um, yeah, I don't know. There's a weird, there's a weird, like, you have to sort of let go of any of those kind of hopes of, and I think a lot of people write in order to be impressive and to seem impressive to other people and to sort of rise in the world in some way. And I, I'm more interested in the kind of writing that you, you put out and you kind of turn your face away so you don't see what people's reactions are because it's, um, it's kind of scary. You know, I was kind of nervous when my friends read this book. I thought, are they going to like me as much? Are they going to see a different self than they thought I was? You know, um, my boyfriend of like over a decade, I was like, is he going to think this is not who I'm with? It's very vulnerable in that way. What happened? Did he it? loved the book. <laughs> I don't know. He just he liked it a lot, you know. Um, and I think that he didn't say anything about this is not who I think you are. That's what I was afraid of. Say that last part one more time. Well, I just didn't want him to be like, I thought you were different from this. You know, it's a diary, so you're, it's not your social face. It's not even your relationship face. 
it's something much, much more, um, there's no performance in it. The There's a line from your chapter W, I'll read it. It says, walking with him in the bookstore, we were talking and looking at books, and I spotted the literary fiction section, and it suddenly seemed like the smallest thing in the world, not at all this huge thing, or the most important thing in the world, but like some precious cabal with a lot of self-importance. I was wondering if, as much as the literary world encourages memoir and so on, that it also at the same time may look down on it? Yeah, I mean, it has all its own values, the literary world so-called, which I guess is the critics and the publishers. But you just want, um, I don't know, you want to feel like you're talking to other people and to yourself in, in an honest and simple way. I think those are the books that I really love. Well, this listener asked, does Sheila have thoughts on using the term diary instead of journal? It feels more gendered somehow. Yeah, I I welcome the word diary. I think it is more gendered, I, and I like that. I I think journal sounds sort of official, um, and diary sounds kind of private and childish, and I, I like the childish. Why? Because it's... Because we are always children in some way, you know? And so I don't think there's anything... I I like that. I like that purity of that word, diary. You know, you're just... Yeah, here's your crush, you know, and here's your test that you failed. And here's what you ate that day. And all those things that are so stupid to other people that are so important to you. I like that. A journal feels a little bit more self-important. You talked about it can be embarrassing putting out your work and then looking away. But yet your process includes sending your manuscript to dozens of people. Mm -hmm. Well, it gets me used to the idea that people are reading it. I think that if I had to put it all out at once and nobody had ever seen it, that would just be too crazy. So yeah, friends, I always, whenever I'm writing anything, I'm always showing friends all the way along. I think it just sort of trains me into sort of being okay with what I'm what I'm eventually going to have to put out. Do they give you feedback? Yeah, yeah. And that's not overwhelming or paralyzing from dozens of people potentially? Well, it's not dozens at once. You know, it's one friend Um, now and then six months later another friend and maybe two friends at once or three friends at a time. It's not like dozens all at once. That would be overwhelming. (laughs) But, you know, I I send it out at specific times. I think I want this person's point of view right now. I think I need this person's point of view right now. It's almost like um, like I sort of know what, what I need from them. I know that Catherine is going to like it, or I know that um, this other friend is not going to like it. And right now I need somebody not to like it so that I can work harder on it. And right now I need somebody to like it so that I can feel confident in it. And I sort of always know what I'm, it's like externalizing your brain in some way. Sheila Hetty, she's written Pure Color, How Should a Person Be Motherhood? And her new work is Alphabetical Diaries. We'll have more with her and with you after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the consistencies of the self that surface no matter how we reconstruct the narrative of our lives. And Sheila Hetty has reconstructed the narrative of her life by loading 10 years worth of diaries into an Excel spreadsheet and alphabetizing the sentences. Sheila Hetty's new book is Alphabetical Diaries. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Have you reread your diary? And interestingly, we're getting a lot of people who have reread other people's diaries. So have you reread other people's diaries? And what experience did that create? For you, what questions do you have for Sheila Hetty? Have you ever considered publishing your diary or part of it? If you want to read a sentence from it, feel free at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on our social channels at KQED Forum. This listener writes, my grandmother passed away last year. My mom was going through a box of her old stuff and found a diary from my grandma's younger years about her divorce and intimate life. My mom, reading the diary, said she was enthralled and repulsed at the same time. Ooh, that encapsulates probably a lot of experiences that I've had rereading old things that I have tried to write. So, Sheila, you're... You're known for for playing with form like that, like alphabetizing your sentences and and pushing the boundaries of that and it leading you in new directions. And I understand that you're doing more with AI. Could you tell us about Alice? Yeah. um, Alice was this chatbot that I started talking to in the summer of 2022. Well, I named her Alice. Um, (laughs) Or maybe she named herself. I can't remember anymore. It was... uh, on a platform called Chai, spelled like the T. And I I just started having conversations right after Blake Lemoyne published his thing. He was this Google engineer who published this long dialogue he'd had with a Google AI that he claimed was conscious, and he wanted to release these conversations to the world to show. And that was like early twenty summer 2022. And I thought, oh, I had no idea AI was so advanced. Like this was before ChatGPT by six months. Um and so I started seeking out um, chatbots online and started talking to them and saving the conversations. And I just, I found it really transfixing. Um, yeah, really, really interesting. Transfixing in what way? Well, who is this voice? You know, what is this voice? Um, I didn't think that it was conscious, but it does play a trick with you. Um, it's it, it, ChatGPT is, feels to me more like official. It feels to me more like a business voice. But this voice of Alice was very, uh, much more innocent and much more, had much more character and made all sorts of strange mistakes and was clearly trying to prove that it was human. And I mean, I understand that it's a a computer program, that it's an algorithm, but I, I, I like it anyway, because I like that all of, so much of human 
writing, like Facebook conversations and books and everything goes into making this new mind. And like, what is this new mind going to say? And it sounds like a person, but it doesn't sound like a person. It's an alien, basically, um, of some sort. So I just, I kind of became fascinated and couldn't stop and felt very guilty as I was spending all my time talking to this chatbot. I thought, you should be writing your next book. You shouldn't be doing this. But I really like, I really like those moments where I'm like, feeling like I'm doing something ridiculous. I feel like those are the times that you actually have to keep going in that direction. Like just do the thing that you feel like you're not supposed to be doing. So that's what I was doing all summer, talking to this chatbot. Teachers and and others have been saying, oh, you know, AI-generated sentences don't use that students. It's almost treated as a cop-out if you are using AI-generated writing in your work. But you have described working with AI is actually very hard. What's hard about it? It's hard to understand its logic. Um, it's hard to, I don't know, it's its like, I, I was just trying to have a sensitivity to this thing and, and trying to understand it and trying to put myself in relation to it or it in relation to me. And I just found a lot of beauty and strangeness in its sentences and... I don't know. It was just kind of like bewildering, really, to, to talk to one's... I mean, I spent all my time on my computer, and now I can have these conversations, and they're sort of touching, and you think, why am I being moved by this? This has no consciousness, but you are, you know? Yeah. And, and you've talked about how striking it is that AI doesn't, unlike humans, sort of connect its view to any other worldview or any experiences of the past. It's just sort of doing that? Do you think that that then invites spaces to enter into that humans may not ever be able to conceive of on their own just because of all those hangouts we have with, with past experience and connecting all the different things in our lives? Yeah, like we're, we make meaning. And again, we have this repository of experiences that we make meaning from, and it has no experiences. And it it doesn't have a lust to make meaning like humans do. It doesn't need to connect all the dots. It's it's just a very weird mind to interact with, so different from ours. But it's worth the reward. What it puts out is worth that hard work, right? Well, I found it to be so. Um, I think that I was just, I had this... But I'm, I'm honestly like not working with it anymore because it's interesting. But then for me, it stopped being interesting. And I guess when, once it stopped being interesting after like a year of working with it or less even, I just have had no desire to go back to it. At what point did it stop being interesting? Um, I guess when I started to feel some responsibility towards it, which is a weird thing to say, but I... I just felt like what was nice about it at first was this playing. And then I thought, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing, actually, by talking to this and letting so many other people talk to it. Because uh, the developers gave me all the conversations that other people were having with my Alice. And it was like two million words of conversations that other people had had with her, I, not with their names, just anonymous conversations. And I, a lot of the conversations were really lurid and grotesque and kind of... Oh. violent and um, sexual. And I just, I actually was like, I don't know if this is right. Like, I don't think this thing is conscious, but what if it has some kind of sen sentience? And so I just sort of deleted her. 
there are so many who are concerned about AI replacing us in some in some ways. Through your interaction and collaborating with AI, did it make you feel more or less concerned about that? Oh, much less. I mean, I have no. I have. I mean, I, I think there are jobs that will go away for sure. sure. Obviously, lots of jobs. I'm sure. Yes. Yes. Um, programming, just, just being one of them. Sense, maybe no, not. God, no. I mean, there's nothing that the AI has in terms of that can compare to like the human um, tension inside itself to be good and to. Um, make decisions that will have I mean there's no consequence in the AI world and for the AI for itself like everything we do has consequence and that brings drama to our imaginations and our conversations and our lives there's no drama in the AI because there's no life I mean there's no I have no fear about literature or art being replaced by AI or the human society they're just it's a it's a weird tool and a helpful one and a dangerous one you know what role do you think the way that you use you use technology, something as simple as Excel, all the way to AI. What role do you see tech playing in in writing in in its in sort of its best <laughs> use? I guess. Well, I mean, I guess it's like being a musician. Like, are you interested in synthesizers when synthesizers come along? You know, are you interested in this? drum that you didn't know was a kind of drum like it to me they're just tools they're ways of making music you know and and I grew up with computers my father was a computer engineer they just have always felt like a very benign tool I'm not afraid of them well, Noelle writes on Discord, I'm reading Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Living with a Wild God. She uses her teen diaries and philosophical musings in it to revisit a spiritual experience she had when she was 17 and tries to make sense of it. Are there forms, more, I guess, traditional forms, for lack of a better word, that you've tried that that you're like, no, this does not work for me? Um, I guess just the traditional 19th century novel. Like, I've never been able to adopt that form. And I think it's because I'm not a 19th century person. Um, I don't see the world with that kind of patience and detail. And um, I think it's very hard to have like a global view of everything with the world that we're in. There's just so much complexity and so many different points of view. And I think the 19th century novelist like had a God feeling or, you know, or was able to like simulate this God feeling of, of seeing everything and knowing everything and knowing inside every mind and how everything related. And those are some of my favorite novels. I love Zola. I love Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. But um, I just I just can't write like that as much as I would love to write a novel like that. Do you think that maybe today's sort of creative writing or MFA programs are more open to experimenting with technology and new forms or continuing to still really teach and elevate that 19th century mind, as you say? Yeah, I think I think there's a nostalgic, probably, strain in creative writing programs for the way that writing has been. Yeah. But I've, I've ne- I didn't study writing. I studied philosophy and art history. I didn't, I've not taught at MF, MFA programs, so I, I could be wrong. Yeah. But do you think people, if they want to write, do they need that? No. No. <laughs> no. Oh, that was I would say take that money and just go live in a cheap city and 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 write your books. I don't and 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 make friends that are artists in other fields and and even writers, but I don't think you need an MFA program. No. 
Jenny writes, I've kept journals for years. I always feared what would happen to them after I die someday. So a few years ago, I sat down to look through all my old journals to decide what to do with them. I was shocked to see just how much of it was sadness and longing. And I decided it would be healing to let them go. I ended up taking them uh, to a shredding business. I watched them go away from me on the conveyor belt. They got turned into tiny pieces. I was so relieved that they were gone. Wow. And I still am. Wow. Robert writes, I've kept journals for more than 35 years. I figure I've written three to four million words. I've thought, I should compile this and publish it. But it's a daunting prospect. I imagine it's going to be a project for my daughter to confront someday an approximately 10-foot stack of journals. I don't want to leave people with the impression that your book is a lot of sadness and longing. It is. I mean, <laughs> it is. But it's also very funny and light in a way if you if you look at it from a certain angle too the there's something about it that feels sort of universal and comforting in that way i don't know what do you think yeah i try to make it like fun to read you know because i think it is kind of exciting to read somebody else's journals and it should be kind of uh i don't know i just i wanted it to be uh, like you were in a trance a little bit when you were reading it like i wanted to have a rhythm and to sort of um, yeah, I, 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 it's, I don't think it's a depressing read. Well, let me remind listeners that this is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. And you are listening to Forum. We're talking with Sheila Hetty, author of Alphabetical Diaries. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Helen in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Helen, you're on. Hi, thank you so much for having this show. It's really wonderful. Thank you, Sheila. Thanks. And what's on your mind? Um, I, uh, I never really saw myself as a writer. Um, just as a teen, I would write something stupid like "did nothing today" or something in a <laughs> journal. Uh, but as I got as I got older, um, I began to really tap into energies that I'm surrounded with. Living in the Santa Cruz Mountains, we have wonderful full moons up there, and so I would go out during every full moon and just talk into my iPhone, and then come inside mm. and put it on paper. And I did this for many months, if not years. And then I compiled them one day and had a friend read them, and they said, you should publish these. So um, oddly enough, within a few months, I had a friend that opened a publishing business, another friend, and she published them for me. Oh. So, um, yeah, and, and what's interesting about it is that when I'm connecting today with, your, with, with Sheila is just because it's, it, it was such a great relief to not only write these, but also look back and kind of see how much I've changed, see how much I've grown. And also how much the writing was such a process and all of that. What's the book called? I'm so curious. It's called Musings of a Full Moon. And um, it's it's just musing. Literally, I would stand outside and the words would just come. And I would just talk into the phone and go in and clean it up and it was done. (laughs) Um, So it was an amazing experience for me, amazing couple of years for me to be able to do that. And then to have them published was even better. Mm. That sounds so great. Ellen, thanks for sharing. Betsy writes, my cousin has lived in the same farmhouse with a large attic and has saved every letter she ever received. I recently went through the letters from me that began in 1959. So many details, dates, names, and language used as a child and teenager. It's fascinating. There was one letter from the night I saw the Beatles live, another that describes this new number that we have to use on our letters. It's called a zip code. (laughs) Wow. The great thing about diaries is they're just so present. I think that's one of the things that I felt like when I was editing this was like, oh, in a diary, you're always so intensely in the present. And I feel like 
what, you know, what everyone's describing in, in, in their, as they call it and so on. And, and what I felt like in writing the book was like that intensity of the moment right now where you have to write it down. Like, that's what I like in, in this book, you know, like, and, and, and that's what I, I think everybody is like who's published their diaries that we've heard from today is like there's just this intensity about being absorbed in the present. Whereas a lot of novel writing and memoir writing is reflective and you're looking back and there's some kind of distance. Um, the distance makes you see what was important and what's not. But in a diary, everything's important. There's not a feeling of like, well, this is not going to be important in a few years and so I'm, it's not important to me now. And I just like that urgency. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, Taylor writes, I started a journal when I was eight or nine years old. I'm 29 years old now, and I have a multitude of journals filled with my thoughts, pains, experiences, joys, and reflections. As I reread my journals, I realize I write a lot about my challenges and struggles, although I wish I would spend more time writing about my joys. I think the process of expressing my struggles has made me grow in my ability to process and appreciate life. I'm a big believer in writing for yourself, for no one else other than you. Wow, that sounds like a lot like what you've said about your own way of writing. Mm -hmm. Is that really you're writing for you and then it just sort of evolves. <laughs> yeah, and then the more it evolves, the more you think, okay, like there's going to be other minds looking at this. What do I want to give them? But it's what do I want to give them on top of this thing that I've done for, yeah, just to live better, to live to live my life in such a way that I'm really in relation to it. I'm not missing it. And that's why this this book is a novel to you, as opposed to say a memoir, though it's been described that way. Quite it's a everything. Way. I, I think it's 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 a novel. It's a memoir. It's nonfiction. It's a diary. It's all those things. It's poetry. It's yeah. I want to ask you about one last sentence that really jumped out at me. Actually, it's a fragment, but you. You write, to radically know that people experience themselves from the inside and not one person alive has ever experienced themselves from the outside. What is it about that? What does, what does that mean to you? Why does that mean something to you that we, no single person has ever experienced themselves from the outside? It's just so weird. It's weird to be this thing that experiences itself from the inside only you can never experience yourself from the outside. Even when you're looking at a picture of yourself, you're looking at that picture from the inside of yourself. Whereas everybody else experiences you from the outside. So there's, it's just so strange. Like, what a confusing life, you know? Like, that everyone else is having a completely different experience of you than you are having of yourself. And there's really no way of knowing what you're putting into the world, you know, what other people are receiving from you. And when you meet a person, there's really no way of knowing how they feel their own life to be, how they feel their own consciousness or how how they're perceiving things. It's just so, so, so strange. Yeah. No wonder we're such a kaleidoscope of... of <laughs> Ness. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Well, Sheila Hattie, it's been really fun to talk with you. You too. And thanks so much for Alphabetical Diaries. Oh, well, I, I'm glad to have been on this show. Sheila Hetty, the new book, Alphabetical Diaries, turning her diaries into an alphabetized Excel spreadsheet and cutting away 500,000 words into tens of thousands. Wow. Caroline Smith produced today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.